Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Bruce Pierce with another episode of my podcast, Women's Healthcare with Dr. Bruce Pierce. Today, we're going to talk about breast health. So with me, my very special guest is the medical director of the Breast Health Center, uh, which is from Penn Medicine Princeton Healthcare here in lovely East Windsor, New Jersey. And my guest is Dr. Rachel Daltz. Hi, hi, Dr. Daltz. Hi, Dr. Pierce. Can I call you Rachel for the sake of the, uh, you know, informality of the podcast? Absolutely. I knew I could. Uh, Dr. Daltz and I have known each other for, oh, I think, over 20 years. 20 years. 20 years now. So we've worked hand in hand. So we're good friends and colleagues. And we're here to talk about breast health. Big topic, obviously. Um, so I'm going to start, I guess, for those who are unaware or just listening, uh, I'm an OBGYN in private practice, also here in the Princeton, New Jersey area, and uh, Dr. Daltz and I have a lot of in common patients, uh, so, uh, but we're here, we're here to talk about breast health. So I guess I'll go through a list of questions I get from my patients that you, the expert, will answer. Sounds good. Sound good? All right, good. So I guess then uh, we'll start at the beginning. Um, how old does a woman, female, need to like, at least start doing breast exams or breast checks at home? That's a great question. Um, I thought so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so if they have no strong family history for breast cancer, we think that women in their 20s should start knowing what's normal for them and should start doing their sort of breast exams. We stop recommending rig rigid or rigorous breast self-exams, but right. you should know what's normal starting in your 20s. Right. Well, that early, huh? Mm -hmm. So now I heard that we're not supposed to call it breast exams anymore. Right. It's like breast awareness. Right. Know what's normal for you. Right. Now, why did they take that away? What was, what I think was to decrease behind? the anxiety. Women were doing breast exams, whether they were in their 20s or 30s, and they would come to their doctor if they felt something, and they get very nervous, and they thought they would do, should do breast exams every day. So it was leading to high anxiety, additional tests, imaging, stress, um, with no real benefit. With no better outcomes. No better outcomes. No, no earlier diagnosis. No, none. Right. So just more stress. So American Cancer Society and other societies said, well, maybe you shouldn't call it breast self-exam, just more breast awareness. Know what's normal for you. Right. And if something is different, then notify your doctor. Right. I think what I go over with my patients is, you know, because I used to say, they used to say, oh, it had to be once a month after your period. Yeah. Same and then, time every same month. Same time every month, in the shower. And then everybody said, well, I can't do that. and I, Or I forgot one month, so I had to skip it. And then I said, ah, I Then I did it twice and one month. Then I did it twice. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the self-breast awareness just takes away all those restrictions and yes. rules. And just, you know, just know what's going on exactly. in your breasts. Yes. Correct? Exactly. All right. Perfect. All right, so then the next question is usually asked is, well, when do I get a mammogram? Yeah, that's a great question. Most of the societies still recommend screening baseline mammogram at age 40. And baseline means you have no complaints. Uh, you go see your doctor, your nurse practitioner, and you get a prescription. Um, and you go have a mammogram, which looks at both breasts with an x-ray. And the only time we start earlier 
is if one, the patient has a problem. So if they come to you at 35 and they say they feel something or they see something, then we obviously do the workup sooner. Or if they have a very strong family history for breast cancer in their family at an early age. So for instance, if somebody's mother or grandmother had breast cancer at 45, we would recommend starting screening 10 years earlier than the earliest family member if it fell before 40. So let's say their mother had breast cancer at 45, we would recommend starting getting a mammogram at 35. Now what if it wasn't their mother, let's, what if it was their grandmother or same, their aunt? Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. Start at 35. If it's probably their fifth cousin or some right. distant relative, probably not that important. Um, but it's not just the degree of relatives, it's, it's how many family members have breast cancer. So we generally say if my cousin had breast cancer and she was young, I would start earlier getting my mammograms because of her. Right. Now, since we're on the topic of mm-hmm. uh, family history and age, what about, uh, what, what, have you ever heard of BRCA? I know you have, but <laughs> I'm leading you. <laughs> what is BRCA, B-R-C-A uh, testing? Well, it looks at genetic mutations in high-risk profile and high-risk families and women, sometimes even men, um, who have who are born with a genetic mutation that predisposes them to not only get breast cancer but other kinds of cancers. And there are subsets of patients, subsets of cancers that we find which are associated with an increased risk of these mutations. So knowing your family history is very important. Knowing where your family history comes from is very important because these mutations are in the whole population, but they're higher in number in certain subsets of populations, in Jewish patients. We used to say it's only in one set of Jewish patients, Ashkenazi Jewish, which is Eastern European, but, but probably it expands to all Jewish you know, populations. And so the incidence is higher in those populations. So if somebody has a cancer in themselves, in themselves or in family members, and it's an ex- a lot of family members who have malignancies, when I see them or their clinician sees them, we try to dig a little deeper and see who has cancer, how old were they, might they have this genetic mutation. And if they do, if they are at risk, then we offer them genetic testing and genetic counseling. Mm-hmm. And that's a simple, it used to be just a blood test, but now it's a saliva test. Right. And we get the results back fairly quickly. And then we could guide people to make recommendations based upon the results. And who should get this testing? So there's two types of patients, you know, and we'll separate those that have a cancer and those that have a risk factor for having cancer. So let's talk about the woman that's newly diagnosed with breast cancer. If she's young, anybody less than 50 qualifies to having genetic testing. Okay. And the majority of the mutations are seen with the BRCA mutations. There are other mutations, but these make up the majority of mutations associated with the breast cancer. But let me backtrack a little bit. Go ahead. 90% of breast cancers arise sporadically for reasons we don't know. So this is something that I think a lot of my patients also get wrong. They think the opposite, that 90% are right. family-related. It's not. It's, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's exactly not. Right. 90% yeah. happen for reasons we don't know. Whether it's environmental, part of it might be genetics. Part of it, it, there's a whole combination of things we don't really know. But more which than ninety percent, yeah, which <laughs> right. is scary. Right. It might change when we maybe identify more mutations, but 
but that number hasn't changed over the years. Mm. So less than 10% are associated with a genetic mutation. So our idea is to try to find those 10% who have a mutation. And ideally, it would be before they have a breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So going back to who should we test. So let's say I see somebody because they come to see me because they have a strong family history. So Bruce, you or your partner send somebody to me because, well, they might not have a problem, but their mother does, their aunt does, their grandmother does. So I would sit down and get a thorough family history and talk to them and see if they qualify and if they should have genetic testing. And if they do qualify and they do want to do it, then we can either do that here or we have a genetics counselor that comes here once or twice a week and she meets with them and we do genetic testing. And then depending upon the results, we then talk about do we do increased screening? Do we do more surveillance? Do we do some preventative surgery? So so before we even do the genetic testing, we start the conversations with the patients so they know what might be coming if they have a mutation. But the majority won't have a mutation. So that's the population that doesn't have a cancer. We're looking for them. We want to maybe hopefully find them before they have a problem so we can put them into a high-risk category and and follow them more closely. But sometimes we we don't get that lucky. We have somebody that has a breast cancer, and now we're backtracking a little bit. So who do we screen? We screen anybody that's less than 50 because mm-hmm. they're more likely to have a genetic mutation than somebody that's older. We screen anybody that's Jewish. Mm-hmm. So at any age, whether they're 30, 50, or 70, they would qualify for genetic testing. So if they have breast cancer. If they have breast di- cancer. Di- right. if okay. they have, no, so these are people right. with a with, diagnosis with, of breast, breast cancer. Ca- correct. If they're young, if they're Jewish. If they have more than two family members with breast cancer, they qualify. If they have a family member with breast and ovarian cancer, they would qualify. We would talk to them about genetic testing. If they have other family members with pancreatic cancer, with melanoma, with sarcomas, other kinds of cancers, these are red flags that they might have a genetic predisposition or genetic mutation. So we would talk to them about screening. And how, how does the screening, will it affect their treatment or will it affect just just so they know their other family members need to be tested? Both. Or, right. Both. So it affects their treatment. So if we do a genetic testing and we find out somebody has this BRCA mutation or another mutation, but mostly the BRCA mutation, and they have a, a malignancy that we can operate on, the type of surgery we would recommend would be different than if they didn't have the mutation. Because these patients who have mutations have a higher likelihood of the cancer returning in that same breast or getting another cancer in the other breast. So sometimes we do bigger surgery like bilateral or both side mastectomies. Right, rather than just Rather than just a lumpectomy and radiation and then just waiting for the cancer to come back if they have this mutation. And then on my end, we have to talk about their ovaries. Right, Right. exactly. And that's pretty scary, too, because it's not easy to screen for ovarian cancer. Right. So, And for those who don't know, the the BRCA uh, uh, genetic testing, if it's positive, in addition to increasing the breast cancer risk, increases the ovarian ovarian cancer cancer risk significantly, Mm -hmm. which there's no screen. Right. So then we have to talk about removing the ovaries. So it does help in our surgical treatment. It also helps the medical oncologists, the doctors that help us after surgery, if they're, they have a mutation, because there are some medicines that are more beneficial to those type of cancers compared to 
non-BRCA mutation carriers. And then, of course, it extends to their family members, sisters, children. Right, right. And we can offer testing to them. So it sounds like the take-home is the first screen the population who is higher risk. Right. It's not 90%. It's usually less. Yeah. Uh, Then the screening is uh, could change your surveillance. Absolutely. could change the surgical options. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also there are some medicines that, you know, there's, so it's, uh, there's alternatives because a lot of people say, well, I don't want to know if my risk is that high. I'll just be freaked out all day long and there's yeah. nothing I could do about it. I don't want to know. Well, we believe like knowledge <laughs> is good. Is good. good. <laughs> knowledge is power because we, not everybody who screens positive That's from Animal House, it. by the way. You yes. Know, you know the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> knowledge not, is good. <laughs> knowledge is good. Information is good. Right. So yes, and Bruce, you're right. We don't have to do, if somebody comes in for screening and we find out they have a mutation we can offer ever anything from just increasing surveillance like additional mammograms mris which is a different way to look inside the breast to surgery to some medications all things that we hope would not only reduce the risk but if if there is something there we're screening them and watching them more closely so if they were to develop a cancer we might find it sooner than rather than just with regular screening which is always better which is always better all right let's so let's get into the normal risk person okay all right we talked about the high risk person let's talk about the normal risk person so you said there are certain uh, there's different guidelines from different it's it's confusing Mm -hmm. so so but it sounds like American Cancer Society, I know the American College of OBGYN agrees yeah. with the American Cancer Society. Um, agrees with the American College of Surgeons, right. the American College of Radiology, right. that 40 is 40, the 40. That's what I Because I have a lot of patients who are 35 and came in, okay, I'm ready for my mammogram. I have, yeah. And, 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 I'm, and they're low risk. I'm like, well, you have to wait till you're 40. I'm like, oh. They don't want to wait. That's They don't want to wait. Right. They don't want to wait. Is there a harm to doing it? Probably not, but at 35, your breasts are still very dense. Right. So it makes reading, getting a mammogram a little bit harder. It's not really harmful. Some people want it at 35, and that, that would be the baseline. It's probably not harmful. And somebody will say, well, my friend had a breast cancer at 35. Right. So That's right. So it's okay. We can, as clinicians, we follow, they're just guidelines. Right. So if somebody comes into you and it comes to your office and say, well, I'm 37, do I really have to wait till I'm 40? Right. No, you don't have to, but there are more false positives. Correct, so and that's where, and that's where the issue comes. Okay, so the thirty-five low risk, they get this. Their breasts are dense because they're younger, mm-hmm. and then they it leads to another leads, test. Leads to another test, or even a biopsy, mm-hmm. and then you have to go down that road. Yes. So sometimes I'll t- if my patient insists, right. I'll tell them, all right, but FYI, don't be shocked if it comes back. You need a additional films. They call right. you back, you freak out, right. and then or they can't see something, and so. That is the caveat. That is the caveat. Right. Sometimes the screening leads to more, more Testing, tests. Right. And more anxiety. And more anxiety. Right. Because so. while you're waiting for the test, yeah. you're freaking out. Exactly. <laughs> and the family's yeah. freaking out. <laughs> so, so generally, if you can talk somebody into having a mammogram closer to the age of 40, that's reasonable. Let's go on the opposite spectrum. I have when patients who don't want ma- I don't want a mammogram. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm, for, I'm afraid of the radiation is the usual. Mm-hmm. Or I'm afraid it caused, I heard mammograms cause breast cancer. What do you that, say to that? That's false. I don't think there's any study that says mammograms cause breast cancer. The way we do mammograms today, you know, with 3D mammograms, the radiation dosage is very low. Um, 
I think I came in one day into our into the office and they had something on the news about thyroid cancer right. and and the radi- and people who are getting mammograms and they should always ask for a thyroid shield right. and I've seen that out there yeah, yeah. On social media yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that's not that's not true <laughs> that's not true we use as little radiation as we need to 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 get a clear picture and the benefits far outweigh the risks right so and I always it's kind of funny because a lot of people go to the dentist regularly and get those dental x-rays. And that's a that's like a radiation gun yes. pointed at your mouth. Right. And we don't get cancer. <laughs> and, and everybody's okay with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, the, uh, you know, the, no, the, the radiation from, right. from mammogram. I'm, it, right. Yeah, so. so for people who are so fearful, what I say is try to get one every year. If it stretches to every one and a half years. It's okay. Right. If it ever, if you decide you want to do it every other year, it's probably still okay. But I think once you do that, then it'll be three or four years until they have their next mammogram, and that's not okay. Right. So I do try to get people to, to have mammograms at least every year, every year and a half. There are other tests we can do, like ultrasounds and MRIs, but. But mammograms still identify 90% of breast cancers, and they're the best screening tests. What's a thermography? <laughs> the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. <laughs> yeah. So thermography uses heat um, to identify things in the breast. Mm-hmm. But there's, it's not, I don't think, FDA approved for the right. screening of breast cancer. It's never been shown in any prospective trials to be as accurate as mammograms. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just to know the modality to use to look inside the breast, but we don't use it and I don't rely on it for the detection right. of breast cancer. It's, There's a lot of stuff out there, mm-hmm. again, on the internet that says, oh, this is a suitable alternative it's not. to mammogram. No, it can be used like a lot of things as adjunctive or in addition to it, but it doesn't replace mammography. And you got to think there's some radiation involved in that as yeah. well. You know, I don't, I've never seen it. I just know patients come to my office with this thing that looks yes. like some geographic geologic survey or something and they say see there's something hot here and then we have to go backwards and try to find it and there's a lot of false readings on those so i don't i don't think our society like the american society of breast surgeons the american cancer society american college of radiology we don't endorse using that for screening okay so all right Good I'm going to put that in the back pocket. And good, good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Because you know, there's a lot of information yes. out there. All right. So let's. All right. So let, the guidelines are from ages 40 to 50. It's every one to two years, as you said. Yeah. Then what do you say to that? Uh, but I still say it's it's from 40 up. It's yearly. That's the, Those are our guidelines. Right. If somebody ends up skipping a year, it, it's, it's uh, not the worst thing in the world, but we have to make sure that they're back on track and we try to get it yearly. And as you said earlier, since we don't know what really causes most breast yeah. cancers it could be environmental we certainly live in a in yeah. new jersey where there's a lot of uh, industry mm-hmm. and and a lot of uh, pollution so who knows you know we i always say no we live in new jersey it's once a year yeah <laughs> that's my that's my answer yes i agree that's a good <laughs> uh, answer but substitute your your uh, town for that um all right so now every year until when when can you stop oh that's a great question i thought so <laughs> <laughs> Well, our societies, (laughs) you know, again, the ones that we follow, say you should stop having mammograms when you are no longer able to have treatment 
for the problem that we might find on the mammogram. So, and that could vary. You know, we can see a very healthy, vibrant 80 and 90 year old, they should still get mammograms. And we can see the converse. We can see somebody who's 60 or 70 on home oxygen mm -hmm. who has no business having mammograms because they have, their medical problems are much larger than, than what we might find on a screening mammogram. So there really is no age cutoff, unlike other kind of screening can, uh, screenings for cancers. For breast, there is no cutoff. It's when your health can't sort of sustain whatever treatment would come from having a mammogram and then the findings because we have very good alternatives to surgery mm -hmm. for elderly women who come in and have an abnormal mammogram and then a biopsy. We have some medication, which are fairly well and easy to take uh, to take, you know, on a daily basis for a few years, which if we do find a cancer and they're not, they don't want to have surgery, we can put them on that medication and extend their life. Right. So we don't have an exact cutoff. But it's if you're of otherwise normal, healthy, and good, healthy, good, healthy, and you're, if something were there, you would be willing to do whatever. Do whatever. Then get your mammogram. Then get your mammogram. Then get your mammogram. Yeah. If right. you're not well, stop getting your mammograms, and that's something we have to get out to the primary care doctors because often I'll see somebody who comes to see me who probably shouldn't be having a mammogram and now we're caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. They're sick and they have an abnormal mammogram so now what do we do? That's yeah. a conversation you should have with your internist or your your GYN right. or your whoever's who's ever ordering you the mammogram. Right. Okay. All right, all right let's all right. Let Let's take me through the worst case scenario. Okay. We, uh, we had a mammogram. They found something. It was biopsied, and it's It's cancer. a cancer. Well, okay. let's, well okay, let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's say they just found something in the mammogram, and, oh. and it's a suspicious abnormality. Right. What do we do? So what do we do? So usually I'll see the patient in the office before they have any procedure. So Bruce or you or one of your colleagues, then you'll get a report and it'll say, Mrs. So-and-so has an abnormal mammogram. And then we're happy to see them. And then we can review the films with them. We can talk to them about, do they need to have a biopsy or not? Mm -hmm. So, and the reason I say or not is that sometimes there are things on the mammogram that don't really need to be biopsied, you know, that the radiologist sees, but, you know, it's probably benign, but they're just going to make a recommendation to have a biopsy just to cover themselves and uh, right. and dot their I's and cross their T's. But when I have a conversation with a patient, they might say, well, what's the downside of not doing a biopsy? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, if we can do a close follow-up, if this doesn't really look worrisome, maybe we can do a close follow-up. And then I'll see you back in six months. So it allows me to have the conversation with the patient. Right. But now let's say that there's something there that's worrisome mm -hmm. and we need to do a biopsy. So I describe the biopsy to the patient. And usually the way we do biopsies is with a small needle, mm -hmm. and we use the mammogram or the ultrasound to sort of guide us into exactly where we need to go to find this area that we probably can't feel, but we can see on the mammogram. It's where, sort of an image-guided biopsy. Where is this done? This is done here at in, the breast center. In the breast So at we're in outpatient. We're in, we're, in outpa we're in an office setting. It's very beautiful. We're in the conference room. We're in the conference room. There's a nice waterfall in the front. There. Yeah. Very, so I was very two calm. rooms. I was very calm when I walked yeah, in. Yeah, so it's I'm, a calming office. Yes. So a few rooms back, we have a little procedure room, one using ultrasound and one using a special mammogram to guide the needle. And it's all done under local anesthesia. And my radiology partners do all my little biopsies for me. So you can drive yourself to and from the biopsy because it's under local anesthesia. You don't need anybody to drive you home. 
we send you home with a little ice pack, um, a little steri strip where the, where we did the biopsy, and it takes about two to three days to get the results back. Mm-hmm. And then we call you as soon as we get the results back. Right. And then, what would you say is the percentage of uh, benign? biopsies that you take oh about 80 percent. that's a lot yeah okay so the so majority of okay. things that we see on a mammogram and an ultrasound turn out not to be a cancer right so that's so of course when you get that call that your mammogram is suspicious and yeah you, you get nervous talk, you get freaked out but i always tell patients look 80 percent 80 percent are benign so 80 so, percent right. and then the 20 percent that aren't there's a good chance that there's still something very treatable and very curable, especially when we're finding them on the mammogram. So it's not a reason to sort of give up hope. Okay. So, okay, now now we're progressing. We've done the biopsy. Now we're in the, the, unfortunately, we're in the 20%. Right. That is positive. That's positive. So so we get them, like, I call them, talk to the patient on the phone as soon as I get the results, and then as soon as I can get them into the office, which is usually the next day or the following day, depending upon if I'm in the operating room, we get them back into the office so we can have a plan. So we can talk about the pathology. So we can talk about what we need to do next. Mm-hmm. And usually what's, what we need to do next is come up with a plan, and that plan would usually be some type of surgery. Mm-hmm. And then I lay out sort of a whole kind of long plan for the patient afterwards might they need some additional therapy afterwards like radiation therapy like chemotherapy um like some pills to take so i try to when i initially see them with their diagnosis i ask them to bring in a family member or a friend so they can have an extra pair of ears right um because you always forget what you hear yeah and some people want to tape the conversation a lot of people want to dial in a family member who's not in and they're a doctor or they're somebody on the other side of the country so we'll allow all of that. Anybody who wants to come in and we sit either in this conference room or the other conference room or in the patient's room, whatever makes them feel more comfortable. And we just lay out kind of a plan for them. Right. And I go through everything with them. And I spend, you know, at least an hour with them going through the diagnosis and then a treatment plan and then a follow-up plan down the road. Right. All right. So in interest of time, nobody's going to hang around an hour for <laughs> for, for our, my podcast. Although you should. But uh, all right. So... The big thing is lumpectomy versus mastectomy. Mm-hmm. So it can you, like, in a synopsis, the advantages and disadvantages? Sure. So the overall survival with uh, comparing l- women who have lumpectomy to women having a mastectomy is the same. So I always tell patients, if you had a twin sister and you had a lumpectomy and your twin sister who had exactly the same genes as you and the same cancer, and she chose, for whatever reason, chose to have a mastectomy. At the end of the day, at the end of time, your survival would be exactly the same as your twin sister. Your survival is based upon the cancer, not the type of surgery we do. So that helps people understand that there's, there's no difference in survival when we're talking about the surgeries. Okay. So they're just different we say there's sort of two different ways to take care of the problem. Right. We do nationwide about 70% of breast cancer surgeries that are done in this country are breast conservation therapy or lumpectomies, which means we go in there and take out the cancer with some tissue around it that's healthy. And then usually we add a short course of radiation therapy afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's basically equivalent to a mastectomy in taking care of the breast cancer. So about 30% of the time, we do mastectomies. 
And sometimes we do mastectomies in young women right. who are very fearful of the cancer coming back. Maybe they have a genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. Maybe their breasts aren't very big. Um, so there are reasons why we do a mastectomy versus why we do a lumpectomy. But at the end of the day, they're good, both good treatments for breast cancer. When we do a lumpectomy, we just follow them a little more closely right. with mammograms every six months for the next few years. With a mastectomy, we just follow them, what we say, clinically. There's no imaging left. Right. But overall, they're both, they're just two different ways in which we take care of breast cancer. And they're both very effective and very good and both approved by all our societies in which way, in, in how we take care of breast cancer. So I guess ultimately it comes down to the comfort level of the, the patient. patient. Yeah, ultimately it's usually patient choice which will help them decide on which avenue to go. I'll help them decide and I'll make my recommendations. So if somebody has a very tiny cancer in their breast and they have a reasonable sized breast and they don't have a strong family history and I don't suspect they have genetic mutation, and a, a genetic mutation, and they, they, they can have radiation afterwards, I will make the recommendation that they should have a lumpectomy. Right. If somebody has a genetic mutation, or their cancer's a little bit bigger, or their breasts are a little smaller, or they've had radiation for something else unrelated in the past, then I'll make the recommendation that maybe they should have a mastectomy. And depending upon if they're young or they desire rebuilding of the breast, then I'll have them visit with one of our plastic or reconstructive surgeons to talk about how we do that and the different options. Right. So, yeah, getting into that then, there are a lot more options now. If the patient chooses or their situation uh, requires or is recommended to get a mastectomy, now there's, it's not like your mom's mastectomy. Or yeah, or grandma, your grandmother's grandmother, mastectomy, yeah, where, it was, where it was very disfiguring. It was radical, right? It was, right, they right. took the breast, took every, they took the uh, muscle, yes. and it looked terrible. Right. So now we can do things that are much less radical, meaning a lot of times we can leave the whole kind of breast, what we say, the envelope, the skin. So we can leave all the skin, we can leave the nipple, mm -hmm. we can leave the whole outside of the breast, kind of make an incision at the bottom of the breast and basically shell out the whole breast right. and then rebuild it all at the same time and we can rebuild it either with a synthetic implant uh -huh. or sometimes we take tissue from the abdomen or the back and move it around and then put it in there and recreate the breasts right. uh, it doesn't have exactly the same sensation as it had beforehand but we can get it to have a very similar appearance right. to what it looked like beforehand and our plastic surgeons, and I work with a few different ones, will explore all of those options with the patients and then come up with something that works for them. Right. So it's one big operation because we remove the breasts and start the rebuilding at the same time. But sometimes it's several operations to get to the finished product. But it's one major operation. So it's a lot better than in the past where we they would have to wait years to have their reconstruction if they wanted to after a mastectomy. Right, and that, that wait is a long time. And with no breast. With no breast, and mm -hmm. correct. So as as our technology and medicine advances, so does, our, so does this. Yeah, and the cosmetic outcome, with no detriment to sort of the outcome related to their cancer. Right. So in the past, we didn't rebuild at the same time because we thought that was not good for the cancer. Right. And not good for the patient. But... Those myths have been sort of debunked, and so it's for for a lot of patients we can do the mastectomy, save the nipple with no 
downside to the patient. Which is great. With no cancer downside right. to the patient. Which is great. Mm-hmm. All right. So my the last thing I wanted to discuss, oh, let's get off the cancer topic. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it, uh, although at the uh, breast implants. What oh. about a, the patient who wants an augmentation? What do you what do you think about that? Uh, I think that that's fine. I think there's some new information about some implants that have been used in the past, what we call textured implants. Right. And they have this, it's not smooth. They feel they're a little um, sort of gritty on the outside. And they have nicer cosmetic appearance, but sometimes, at least some of the studies have been linked to uh, a new malignancy. Right. I don't know if you've heard of that. A, yes. Kind of a, like a secondary lymphoma, yes. a rare case of lymphoma. It's not common. So in fact, they've initially were we were recommending that we don't use them. Now the FDA actually has sort of banned them. Okay. So we don't use those implants anymore. We use kind of smooth implants. Right. So they're safe. So if somebody wants an augmentation, they're completely safe. You know, okay. implants the for the most part they're either saline, which is like a salt water in a little bag, right. or they're silicone, right. like a gummy bear. Right. Um, and they're safe because we don't use the textured implants anymore. We use the smooth ones. But unfortunately some people have the textured ones. What do they in do? Now. What do they do? So we talk to them about the the risks and the benefits of either keeping them in or having them removed. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that most of the younger patients want to have them removed, right? right? They remove their breasts either for cancer or for prevention in hope to prevent something from happening. So even if their chance is one in a few hundred thousand that they might develop this cancer mm-hmm. um, or one in 50,000, it's not a lot. They don't even want that risk. Right. So then okay. the plastic surgeon takes those out and they put the smoother implants in. If we have somebody that's older and 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 doesn't want to do that, we just keep an eye on them. And then very likely they'll be perfectly fine. Okay. So, so if somebody, let's say a young woman, mm-hmm. wanted uh, augmentation. Mm-hmm. We tell them to put the it, smooth implants in. Just put the smooth. Put the smooth implant. We don't even use the textured implants what about, anymore. What about saline versus silicone? There's no data to say one is worse than the other. So you're... you're Yeah, so you would talk to the plastic surgeon and say, this one might look this way, this one might look that way, and they can make a decision. But they're both safe. And how do they affect breast surveillance as you get older? Mammograms, Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's interesting because the way we do mammograms, we actually push the implant out of the way. So it doesn't interfere with our imaging because the the implants are either under the muscle or under the gland. So we're still able to image the mammogram and image the breast the same. Okay. So does there's it, no does, problem. Does it hurt more to get a Not mammogram? From pa- with implants? Yeah. No. They sort of push the implant away. Okay. So from patients, I have not heard that they've heard, that, uh, that uh, hurt. Because a fear is, oh, then I can't get a mammogram. Nope, you can get a mammogram. You can't, you know, sorry, sorry, ladies. You still have to have a mammogram. <laughs> you still have to have a mammogram. You still have to have it's a mammogram. It still can be done. It's not extra painful. And no. It can still be it done. It still can be done. All right. And so, how about the opposite uh, women getting a breast reduction. Oh, so I think from what I've heard, from what patients tell me, is that if they have a reduction and they don't have a cancer, it's probably the most satisfying operation that they've had, that uh-huh. they wish they would have done it years ago. Right. Um, because it's very satisfying. It doesn't hurt, you know, it makes actually the mammogram sometimes easier to read because there's less tissue on the mammogram. And also there's studies that tell us it's not a really a risk-reducing operation, but they are taking tissue out. So, so less tissue. It's less, less tissue, less risk. less risk. 
but it isn't necessarily a risk-reducing operation. But sometimes we do um, breast reduction surgery in conjunction with our lumpectomy. So if somebody comes in with a little breast cancer and they have big breasts, we can reduce their breasts in conjunction with a plastic surgeon and, and do the lumpectomy at the same time. So they get sort of you know, two bangs for their buck. You know, they right. get a breast reduction and they get their lumpectomy and they're good. And so insurance pays for it. Even, it. even better. Even better. Even better. So it's so you're saying you're the expert. Either augmentation or reduction is still okay. It's still okay. It's it doesn't the, increase your doesn't risk for breast cancer. doesn't increase your risk for breast cancer. And you still need regular surveillance no matter whether you have a reduction or an implant. Excellent. So. All right. All right, I'm out of questions. What do you, anything that I didn't mention that you see a lot, hear a lot? That no, you I think, think you covered a lot of the sort of the myths. Um, I think people uh, should should get their mammograms, know what their breasts are like, know their family history, know where they come from, um, and just be aware of changes, um, changes in their breasts, changes in appearance, right? They Somebody might not feel a lump, but they might say, oh, I see a, a dimple in my breast, right. or uh-huh. I see some bloody discharge, you know, anything that's not the same, they should notify their doctor. And most of those things that we find then will still be benign, but still, but still need to be worked out. And that's what we mean by breast self-awareness. Awareness. Just be aware yeah. of what's going on there. Exactly. Right. But I think you covered right. almost everything. All right. Dr. Rachel Dultz, thank you very much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, tune in for my next uh, podcast. And subscribe to my YouTube channel, Dr. Bruce Pierce. We'll also uh, have some of this stuff and surgical videos, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, great. Thanks, Bruce. I'm telling that to you, uh, Rachel. All right? (laughs) All right. Goodbye, everybody.